Welcome to Something About Science. My name is Skylar from Azom and I'm joined by Danielle from News Medical and Megan from Azo Nano. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that's piquing our interest on our sector-specific sites. Try saying that over and over. This time we're going to be going from the past to the future, looking at differences between humans and Neanderthals way back, then in the present looking at battery technologies and a little about the pandemic, and then looking all the way into the future at 3D printing in space, which will maybe help our one-day colonisation of Mars. Okay, so I'm going to kick off this episode by talking a little bit about sand batteries. And these were made through an energy partnership in Finland, where they've recently installed the first fully operational sand battery in the world. The sand battery was constructed by a Finnish startup called Polonite Energy, alongside Vatiankoski, which is an energy utility company based in Western Finland. The sand battery, quote unquote, charges low quality sand with heat from solar or wind generated electricity. It uses resistive heating to do this, and it can store heat at approximately 500 degrees Celsius and can retain it for potentially months. The sand battery has the capacity to store around 100 kilowatts of heating power and about 8 megawatt hours of energy storage. The technology could mean that even when solar wind energy supplies drop due to seasons or just bad weather or whatever causes it to, the sand battery can kick in and keep a renewable energy supply going. It also doesn't use rare materials like lithium, which is a hindrance in lithium-ion batteries. And these are kind of more commonly seen to be the batteries of the future, but in terms of sustainability, they do have a lot of issues. And it can quickly store big energy surges from renewable sources without disrupting the network, which is a problem with renewable energies. Because having renewable energy sources is brilliant, but storage is just as important, and there still are issues when it comes to this leg of the journey. So now that this sand battery is up and running, providing thermal energy to the Finnish region of Kankanpa, which I think is pronounced correctly, we can see how it performs over time and whether this could be something that brings us closer to a renewable future. Sounds pretty interesting. Can I, before I say something intelligent, can I also just say that Polonite Energy is a brilliant name. It's great. It reminds me of the Polar Express, which perhaps it shouldn't, but... (laughs) (laughs) It is still, still really great. That's quite interesting. I'd never heard of a sand battery before. Is this the first time is the sand battery is new to this specific thing or is it something that's already been done? So this is something we've covered really recently on our site Azon but also Cleantech and this is the first commercial sand battery in operation in the world so it's something that's still very much being trialed I think. Um, it's been pretty successful so far but it's one of those things where I think we're gonna have to see how it works over time and how efficient it is through multiple seasons and over multiple years but It seems to be pretty simple in terms of its technology. It's not got any sort of complicated things going on that would mean that it couldn't be installed in different regions or different areas. As long as you have a renewable energy supply, there's kind of no reason why this can't be used as energy storage. So I think it could be a really interesting thing that we could see more often. And although it's not potentially a new idea, I think it's still pretty pretty new in terms of application. I think the thing that stood out to me was the fact that you said low quality sand. So potential costs with that would be low, which of course is a benefit for anyone who maybe has some apprehension to the cost of uh, renewable energy. So yeah, and that's really interesting. So another thing that kind of hinders lithium-ion batteries is that you've got to mine lithium, and also kind of production is still quite expensive, which I guess is one of the issues that comes when you're making electric vehicles. But I think. The more that we can simplify renewable energy technologies, the easier they're going to be to implement and the more sustainable in the long term they're going to be. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think one other thing that stood out to me is the focus on storage. I think 
often with advancements in kind of any energy generation or particularly renewable energy a lot of it is kind of focused more on um, efficiency so how much energy can be generated instead of how much can actually be stored so it's quite interesting to actually look at improving that part of the process as well yeah I think I think it's something that's a bit less I want to find a better word than sexy but like (laughs) I think we focus a lot on the exciting parts of generating the electricity and not a lot on the practical things like storage how we're going to make the energy be a reliable source because that's something that is often brought up when you talk about solar or wind energy that's something that's a bit unreliable so if we can have something that makes the whole system more reliable then even if it might seem a bit boring it is probably the most essential part when it comes to scaling up no definitely and uh, talking of making the whole system reliable (laughs) and improving it you spoke a little bit about lithium-ion batteries and that's actually the topic of one of the things i'm bringing today so the thing i'm talking about today is a piece from our ASA Robotics site and it's a news piece we covered and it's about how machine learning can be used to prolong the life of electric vehicle batteries. So from the financial market to drug discovery, there are few industries where AI and machine learning has not made its mark. More recently, these system innovations have been applied to electric vehicles. Researchers from the University of Cambridge have designed a machine learning algorithm that could help extend the working life of electric vehicle batteries, a crucial component of the vehicle's success. So how exactly can machine learning help prolong the life of batteries? Well, apparently, in more ways than one. Routes that optimise battery health, driving patterns that minimise the need for charging times are just some of the examples where machine learning can help boost battery life. The research was published in the journal Nature Communications and it focused on extending the life of lithium-ion batteries in particular. And it's also thought to be relevant to all areas of the supply chain. So instead of just affecting one area, which is something that we always kind of see, whether it's improving manufacturing or end user, the beauty of this technology is that it can affect practically all areas, even for those of us who drive. So what the researchers did is they used a non-invasive probe and the team was able to gain these biomarkers of battery health, which provide indicators for the battery's kind of life, how's it doing, degradation levels, that sort of thing. So these battery biomarkers were then fed into the machine learning algorithm. In doing so, the machine learning algorithm could actually predict the battery's behaviour under different conditions and then the ultimate effects on the electric vehicle itself. So kind of looking to the future, one of the things that the researchers mentioned is that they'll be working with industry to help translate this battery life boosting algorithm into real manufacturing changes, which could help lay the groundwork for longer lasting electric batteries in the future. Awesome. Electric vehicles, one of those things where I feel like there's such a consistent amount of research coming out about them. But every now and again, you get one really exciting piece that could just bring you that one step closer to having really cost effective, efficient electric vehicles. And those are always really exciting to find. Yeah, because I think one of the main things about electric vehicle batteries is the kind of the life of them and how long do they last. And then obviously with that, there's the whole issue of recycling them. So I think with um, things like machine learning and all the kind of algorithms that go along with that, being able to actually improve that battery life and to actually make real changes for people who are using those batteries, that is the people driving the cars. I think it's something quite important and it's something that people can definitely relate to and maybe even get on board with electric vehicles a little bit more. Yeah, I just thought it was something quite interesting. I love the idea of biomarkers, Mm. of battery health. I think takes an, uh, an example in a different part of science that we already know sort of biomarkers of disease and then translating it into a new part of science I think that that's really cool 
I've got to admit, when I read that, I was like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the world's best thinkers, whether they have been scientists or philosophers, have long pondered on what makes humans unique. Our unique cognitive abilities are the very thing that allow us to wonder such things. A frequent comparison is our extinct relative, the Neanderthal. Not the clumsy caveman that they're often portrayed as. Neanderthals actually had really similarly sized brains to modern humans. However, whether the brains of these different hominin species differed during development, and crucially in terms of neuron production, was unknown. However, in a study published as a news piece on News Medical and as an interview on Azo Life Sciences, researchers revealed how a single amino acid change may be responsible for the difference in human and Neanderthal brains. The gene is as excitingly named as any other gene, TKTL1. There are only a few genes that actually differ in the sequence of their genetic code between modern humans and Neanderthals. And being one of these genes, the modern human TKTL1 contains an arginine, which is a specific type of amino acid encoded by three bases of the genetic code at a certain sequence position. While the Neanderthal TKTL1 contains a lysine, so a different amino acid at the same position. But what difference can that actually make? Well, using a combination of mouse embryos and human brain organoids, they found that when the modern human TKTL1 variant was expressed, there is an increase in a type of brain progenitor cell, which are responsible for the production of most of the neurons in the developing neocortex. Importantly, this is the part of the human brain that is involved in several cognitive functions. So TKTL1 was actually at its highest activity in the frontal lobe. So even if modern humans don't necessarily have more neurons than Neanderthals overall, the researchers say that it can be assumed modern humans have more neurons in this region of the brain that is crucial for cognition. Now, this whole story I thought was really cool and I love anything that involves the use of organoids, like the idea of growing little mm -hmm. layers of tissue. I think this example in particular is really cool because we're taking an extinct species that we can't study developmentally and using new technology such as organoids to study the development of the brain in a species that is no longer with us. Um, and of course, it reveals things about humans and human cognition. So, yeah. And these are all things that we didn't know before, like yeah, at all. Exactly. That's like the change in the amino acids we didn't know. We didn't really know, even know what the gene was responsible for. So we've learned what the gene was responsible for in terms of the development of the human brain. And also we've learned that it differs in humans and Neanderthals. So, I mean, there may be differences in the way that those neurons are then connected that we're unsure of. But this is a start and it's a very interesting start. Oh, I just, I love this story so much. Anything to do with kind of evolutionary genetics, I'm just a massive fan. I think as well, it's research like this that really highlights how important, this sounds so stupid, DNA is <laughs> and how important like our genetic code is and just how one little difference that doesn't seem massive can have such impactful effects on the development of an organism. I think whenever we think about cognition as well, because it can be quite difficult to kind of grasp how the changes that were made or happened to get to where we are now and kind of looking back at our our distant ancestors. I just think it's amazing how even something seemingly so small could have such an impact on the development of our species. It's brilliant. Love it. Great, I think great thing. It's quite revealing as well how few differences there are between humans and Neanderthals. I think 
you can sort of look at the appearance of a Neanderthal and compare it to a human and sort of that sort of exaggerated uh, stereotype of a Neanderthal mm-hmm. that is quite dumb compared to the clever human and think that are quite different. But actually our, our amino acid sequences are incredibly similar, incredibly so. Like I said, there's only a few genes that actually differ in their amino acid sequence. So there's only a few little changes, but they make a big difference. This must have quite an overlap with um, biological or evolutionary anthropology as well. I imagine those kind of fields will feed into themselves, into each other. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. I remember, I think it was a few years ago, it was a study that came out and I think they found that Neanderthals did, they buried their dead, they wore feathers and things like that. And it's, it's like you say, this picture is painted of these really kind of unintelligent and archaic species that was so different to the complicated human society that we have now when in fact like you know maybe that's not that many differences in how they were and how we are now except this one right here yeah (laughs) and just for a little bit of comic relief i hope i'm not the only one who has watched this youtube video well there is a youtube video online of maybe how neanderthals spoke I implore anybody listening to this to just go onto YouTube. It's from a, I think it's an excerpt from a BBC documentary and listen to how Neanderthals spoke, quote unquote spoke, because it is hilarious. So it's like an actual kind of reconstruction. It's, it's not it's someone like making coach. a joke. It's a, I think it's a voice coach. Oh no. With <laughs> someone trying to... But it's not supposed to be funny. It's supposed it's, to be no, accurate. Oh no, it's supposed to be accurate. But please just, yeah, I implore everyone to watch it. In fact... We should watch it after this record. Have you heard the sound of the black hole? Yes. yes. It's terrifying. I am um, so scary. I did an article on they made music out of the sound of the black hole. Like, it's really cool. I also encourage people to seek that out. <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know what the genre would be. It's kind of trancey. It's giving kind of me soothing. sort of like atmospheric brain, you know, sort of like vibes. I heard the James web ones they changed that into into music but i didn't know they did it with the black hole i just thought it was really scary it sounds like very terrifying it sounds like this is a really niche sound but when you're underwater so like say if you submerge your head into the bath and like everything feels a little bit distorted mm. when you hold a shell up to your ear yeah something like that i believe that's called the sound of the sea <laughs> <laughs> no need to get technical about it <laughs> Well, it's actually funny you mentioned black holes because I'm going to take it from our distant past to our potential future by talking a little bit about space, but still also material science. We're going to be talking about 3D printing in space and we'll be covering a little bit about 3D printing for space and 3D printing in space. But first of all, I'm going to talk about a news piece using crushed Martian rock to 3D print. I'm going to be talking about specifically research from Washington State University where they've used simulated crushed Martian rock mixed with a titanium alloy and they've worked out how they can use this to 3D print a high performance material. They've used a material called regolith which is used to mimic the rocky material of Mars. You also have lunar regolith as well. It basically just is the material that you find on the surface of these bodies. I think it's been found to be most effective for coatings to safeguard equipment from rust or radiation because when they found that then there was 100% regolith added to the material it did become quite fragile after it was 3D printed but that being said a small amount of Martian dust mixed with 5% regolith not only did not bubble or crack but also had a superior qualities to titanium alloy alone. The reason this is so important is because when you're flying out to space 
you obviously can't take that much stuff with you, which might seem really obvious, but it's important not to underestimate how expensive it is just to bring a small amount of payloads into space. So this is really important because it means when we're, you know, on our lunar or Mars missions, you know, setting up our colony in however many <laughs> years time, we can use materials from Mars to 3D print and create the things that we need. And even if 3D printing is well established in space, it means studies like this are allowing us to not transport as many materials to create these filaments when we get up there, which is really significant. In fact, it costs around $54,000 for NASA to have a shuttle and deploy just one kilogram, which is about 2.2 pounds of payload into Earth's orbit, just to put that in context. So any significant savings on material load are gonna have a real economic benefit. So like I said before, you can have lunar regolith as well, and they've already done this, and they actually have a 3D printer on the International Space Station, which is capable of printing with lunar materials, which is really cool. And I think that was only in the last year, two years max. So it's definitely something that's pretty new. I think just because 3D printing itself, well, it's not brand new, is still something that we're constantly learning how to do new things with. And this actually links quite well to an article we have on our Quantum website, which is also a space hub, not just quantum information. And it's all about the applications of 3D printing for and in space. And some cool facts include the fact that the Griffin Lunar Lander is equipped with thrusters that were 3D printed and it's expected to carry equipment to explore the moon's south pole in 2023, which is very exciting. And a fully 3D printed reusable rocket is being developed in the US by a startup called Relatively Space. And they have their Terran R project, which is expected to launch in 2024. And supposedly it's capable of carrying up to 20,000 kg into low earth orbit. And that will be entirely 3D printed. So it'll be really interesting to see whether that works. <laughs> I, think, I think it could, we'll see. And also something that was mentioned in the article that I thought was really interesting was they're looking at if they can 3D print cultured meats from bovine cells in space for a potential food supply in the future. So they culture the cells on Earth and then use them to print artificial meat in space in our future Mars colony, <laughs> which is just a bit insane to think about, but also very, very cool. So basically 3D printing is something that I think is gonna really transform space research, space travel, both printing ahead of time, whether it's parts or full rocket ships or shuttles, or just 3D printing small parts and essential things that we need in space. I think it's definitely something that we're gonna see more, whether we find new filaments or we're just kind of using it to make stuff we haven't used before. So that's my little fun fact of the day. Snippet I thought that was so space. interesting, yeah. <laughs> There's so much to just take apart there. I think, first off, it's such a great idea using materials from, the I suppose, the planet we're exploring for, for our own benefit. Is It seems so simple, but you just wouldn't have even thought about it. You'd kind of think, okay, we well, have to prepare everything beforehand. When actually, when you're there, you could kind of do it, do it then. It's really cool. And I remember there was a study... I think coming up on a year ago now, it was, it was a while ago, on using, I think it was Martian material as well to make bricks, but also combined with like astronauts' blood. So you'd use Martian materials and blood to create this new kind of material that could be used to build structures 
on Mars. I feel like that would make a great storyline for a horror movie set, yeah. in, set in Mars. Like, how good would that be? Like, scientist goes wrong and it's like, oh, where are the people? We haven't heard back in touch from them. And he's like, oh, I've made this great house. Come have a look. <laughs> and then you realise the bricks are made from people. <laughs> you should pitch that Megan I really like that (laughs) I won't be on the next podcast I'll be there making my millions in Um, Hollywood yeah (laughs) I think that was a Manchester University study but I'll need to check but yeah no that was that was a really cool one so like you said it's just the idea of using what's already out there instead of having to make new things I think another thing is I uh, clocked eyes with Danielle is that the bovine cells that's Mm. something I've not heard of before I thought you guys would like that yeah (laughs) 3D printing in a biological context in terms of like printing cell lines I think is already a thing Mm. it's definitely something that's been covered on news medical but I've never heard it in that context Mm. in space I feel like (laughs) that was just like one thing after another and my mind was just constantly being blown (laughs) and I was just so overstimulated and overwhelmed (laughs) but it's really cool but 3D printing is cool anyway and 3D printing in space Mm. is just just using crazy. space things using space things space i felt like space. a child and they were like dinosaurs but in space yeah but on a roller coaster <laughs> again great movie plot <laughs> wow we're just we're just really on fire with these movie plots yeah. i mean i would be quite intrigued to see how we'd approach this with other kind of planets or even mm. things like asteroids and how this would kind of factor into I suppose rare minerals let's say so this might be a bit of a leap but I remember reading something about how I think China wants to mine the moon for particular minerals so it'd be quite interesting if say we could 3d print all these different things with these kind of rare I can't really say earth elements but rare elements and how that would kind of all all relate together I feel like I just strung like three different topics together with like no real context there space mining space isn't that a plot point in don't look up so there's another movie for you there <laughs> spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen it <laughs> um but I remember we talked last time as well um about 3d printing and space more loosely and I was talking about that scale mill that NASA's making the oh, yeah. geometries of 3D printed materials for, for use in space as well, which I think is something that is also really cool. So I could talk about 3D printing and space forever. Well, to take us away from space no. and bring us back down to Earth, no. I thought I'd talk about quite an interesting study I came across a few weeks ago, which is up as a new story on their Azonana website. And it's all about HIV. So HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, which is a globally spanning viral infection that causes severe damage to the immune system of infected individuals, destroying a specific type of white blood cell known as CD4 cells. Now, over the years, we all know there's been many innovations in HIV therapeutics and diagnostics, which has been able to change the lives of many who have been affected, all of which for the better. And there are also antiretroviral drugs that help to maintain a low level of the HIV virus within the patient. So antiretroviral drugs can be split into five classes and each of them can be then categorised further into specific formulations, which we will all kind of know as the name of the drug itself. And there's one particular one I will be speaking about today. So Dulategravir, which I'm going to call DTG because I'm not going to try and pronounce it (laughs) over and over again, is a type of antiretroviral drug which is an integrase strand transfer inhibitor. And basically it works to prevent one of the key stages of the HIV viral replication cycle 
proliferation inside the host CD4 white blood cell. So DTG treatment has several benefits, but challenges remain in terms of its bioavailability, as in its ability to actually be absorbed and have an active effect. So here's where nanotechnology comes into play. Researchers have found that reducing the size of the ingredients that are classed as pharmaceutically active to the nanometer range has been found as a very successful way to basically help improve these uptake issues, to help improve its bioavailability. So this is all previous research that's been done. Now, what the new researchers have done, they've looked at whether these nanoformulations, so these pharmaceutically active kind of compounds in the nanometer scale, can they be synthesized using biopolymers? More specifically, can they be synthesized with tutorsam? So not only that, and this is something that I thought that was quite interesting about this study, is that they wanted to see whether these DTG-loaded nanoparticles could be administered orally alongside the common drink, milk. So you might be wondering, why milk? Why was milk chosen? And it's a really simple but effective reason. In this case, it's to improve the DTG treatment effects for one group, children. I thought this was quite an interesting piece of research because, you know, we often think of HIV as an adult's kind of condition, but we forget that there are a lot of children across the world that are also affected by it. In 2020, the World Health Organization reported that approximately 1.7 million children under the age of 15 are infected with HIV, and a further 160,000 new infections have been reported in 2021. So I just kind of liked the story and I thought it was important to also kind of share the story because we often forget that it's all well and good that a drug works and that it's successful and that, you know, it's improved bioavailability or however it is, but if we don't think about who the treatment is for then it kind of sometimes defeats the purpose and it can affect it as well and I think something so simple as seeing whether a particular formulation works well in a common drink that children have I just think it's quite a good good thing and the fact that it uses nanotechnology is a bonus of course. (laughs) I think the thing that struck me was obviously for young children in particular for people of all ages but young children in particular hospitals and clinical settings can be really psychologically upsetting for them so to have something where they could potentially have this maybe in a a more comfortable setting even maybe even their home they could drink the milk that would be amazing really amazing i just need to ask is it just cow's milk (laughs) i was gonna ask the same thing i was gonna say what if you're lactose intolerant well lactase unless you have an allergy so lactase is the enzyme that that helps digest lactose so the reason that people are sometimes lactose intolerant is because like the because you know the whole thing about we're quote unquote not meant to have milk post a Mm -hmm. certain period of time in our lives it's basically because the body will stop producing lactase as you get older because you're grown up and don't need to rely on the mother's milk everyone's born with it so not everybody is born with lactose. So there are people, say, who are fully lactose intolerant mm. and their body just has never produced lactase ever. So I was re- actually reading about oh, no. this the other day. <laughs> Daniel's going to fact check me. No, no, no. Yeah, what you've been saying is exactly right. So I was actually reading about this the other day in a book that was published about 20 years ago called, um, what's it called? It's Give me called, a clue. I think it's called Genome. And basically it was saying that the evolution of the continuation of the expression of lactase evolved with the keeping of sheeps and goats so that's how it co-evolved so in 
places where sort of there was a more nomadic lifestyle you wouldn't have seen that continuation of lactase expression but when we sort of neolithic and sort of started farming you would see certain communities that sort of cultivated and farmed would then continue to express lactase later in life so it's sort of like co-evolved and that's an example of sort of humans imposing their own evolutionary pressure on themselves and there's like quite a few research papers that have kind of been looking at the regional expression of of lactase kind Mm -hmm. of in there across the world geography but i actually can't remember i think it is just milk but i imagine I'd have to look at the details. I think a lot of it would depend on the proteins. And also, you're going to want the thing that is the cheapest and mm. the most w- able to be widely distribu- mm-hmm. distributed and also the thing that is easiest to give children. So it makes sense. <laughs> For all of us who are guessing, Danielle is a vegan. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it would be the... Pro- I'd have to look at the study, but I imagine it would be the proteins and mm. how it would be in there or whether it's just it can be soluble in mm. in milk and that sort of thing. My, my point was more that because I knew it was regional, the kind of, I won't say intolerance, but that kind of not having lactase or having an intolerance for lack of a better word. So it just seemed weird to choose something that could potentially be... But if you think about it, the amount of people that can have milk and do have milk is probably mm. a lot larger than those who can't. That's like one factor. But then it's like Danielle said, it's also the factor of well, what's familiar mm. and what's also they easy and what's just put cheap. it in like water or juice or like something else. Would it need to be something like milk in term- from a scientific perspective? Again, a lot of it would probably depend on how it's formulated. I suppose if we're going from like a fortified point of view, like we've got to think about like fortified milk. If it's something that's shown past examples of it being able to be fortified, you're mm-hmm. going to just go with the past example. So milk can be fortified with vitamin D, can be fortified with other vitamins. So potentially, I'm not sure. Yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Which oh, was very good point. <laughs> I was not criticising this No, no. It's revealed how little I know about milk. No, it's, it is important points though because I think as the world changes and as we continue to kind of look at um, different ways to change our diet and for, you know, whether it's sustainability or kind of cost or that sort of thing, it is important that even when this research comes out and it's great to look at what is realistic and what changes can be made and it's like you say not everybody will be able to take it you know and we've got to be able to kind of provide options for everyone which is a key part of the study (laughs) but yeah in terms of like a first step for a population that is a lot of the time overlooked when you're talking about hiv it's an incredible incredible study Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to shut that down with questions of lactose intolerance (laughs) (laughs) it's discussion it's all good Danielle, do you want to bring us back in line with biology? I will, I will. So we're going from one of biology's best known research areas, which is HIV, to another, which is the world of ribonucleic acids. So RNA, DNA's long neglected cousin, has recently been in the limelight as a core component of the widely distributed mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. But how does RNA arrive at its cellular destination on time? This is a question that researchers at the Wiseman Institute of Science 
have wanted to answer. Several conflicting hypotheses have been proposed, and one proposes that when the RNA carries its protein recipe into the cytoplasm, a short proportion of the RNA molecule acts as a little postcode, or if you're American, zip code, which ultimately gives the RNA a cellular neighborhood to which it belongs. And I'm just imagining this quaint little cellular village <laughs> where, the, where the RNA is trudging along and taking its... Uh, ultimate protein code to the ribosome and it's all sort of, sort of quaint quaint little cellular village but the researchers investigated whether this zip code concept was correct by using an essay that allows thousands of distinct rnas to be studied simultaneously the researchers found a subset of rnas that do possess these zip codes and these zip codes order the rna to either stay in the nucleus leave the nucleus or leave the nucleus after staying in the nucleus for a certain amount of time to add to this little post office analogy proteins were also uncovered to act as postal clerks reading the zip codes on the rna and telling the rna where to go there also seems to be different postal systems for linear and circular rnas and ultimately um these discoveries are important because they may be influential in the growing field of RNA therapeutics, in particular drug design and delivery. For example, if you can tell where an RNA is going to go in a cell, um, it will be beneficial for the cell to make a protein in that area in terms of like transport and more efficient delivery. That's hugely influential. The first thing I think I'd like to discuss is the fact it has circular RNAs. Mm -hmm. They're very unknown circular RNAs. I thought that was quite an interesting thing. So I think I've read that there has been growing research in this area, but it's obviously still not as much as the more famous linear RNAs, which I thought was quite interesting. And I did have a little bit of a, a research beforehand. And one thing I thought was quite good is that it's resolved conflicting research previously. I also found it interesting about the circular RNAs because I think it was interesting to see that there was a difference because like you said, there's not a lot known about circular RNAs compared to the linear RNAs. And to see that there is a difference sort of shows that the, the structural difference in terms of linear versus circular has a functional difference as well. And like you said, that those differences haven't been documented. So any differences that are now discovered are, are significant. I feel like it would be quite interesting as all well, hope for future research is to kind of consider that from an evolutionary point of view mm. as to how these kind of two different processes evolved or co-evolved or how that happened. And yeah, I think it would just be quite, it's quite interesting. It would be interesting just to know how the whole, the zip code I thing evolved. Mm. I find it also interesting. The RNA world, the idea that RNA was here before DNA was, have these zip codes existed for a long time, longer than maybe other biological systems that we take for granted that you know we think are ubiquitous we think are quite common maybe those that exist in the dna world perhaps this rna zip code is maybe this neighborhood has been around a long time <laughs> i suppose the drug design and delivery then might come into potentially changing the zip codes and like say if you have aberrant rna molecule that's going to the wrong place or taking its proteins to the wrong place then changing the zip code could you know kind of help with that yeah definitely and also the um proteins that are the post office clerks as well potentially engineering those it's just a really interesting discovery i do really like all your imagery yeah <laughs> i can't take credit for the imagery it's how the actual um the mm. actual news story was like 
explained, but I think it's a very good analogy. Sometimes science gets analogies right, especially genetics. Sometimes it gets it right and sometimes it gets it so wrong. I feel like, especially with genetics, it can be quite difficult to kind of convey the different roles that different things have Mm. because they all kind of seem similar because you may have this protein that does one thing, but then this protein that does another and then you have DNA and RNA and all these different things. But it's always good to be able to clearly illustrate it in a way that you know people can understand it just kind of helps with the general science communication of different areas of biology especially those that are becoming more known in the I suppose kind of public audiences such as like RNA I know a few years ago how I had to explain what RNA was to quite a few people whereas now for most people they say oh it's a it's a vaccine or it's using the vaccines so yeah always good (laughs) talking about making analogies understandable or makes sense i had a press release once that was trying to describe something in the realm of astrophysics so we're talking massive amounts and they used multiples of the pyramid of giza to quantify the size of this i can't remember what it was like a could have been like a black hole or a planet or something so they said something like it was like eighty thousand times the Weight of the Pyramid of Giza. Because everybody like knows the weight. The, yeah. the usual convention for that is football pitches, Olympic size swimming mm. pools, I know, snooker I tables, know. but never before have I heard. But the funny thing was as well, because I think it was in this press release, it was obviously copied across to all the sources that covered it, including us, because I don't think anyone knew really how to like translate Convert. that into a better way. <laughs> you just kind of stuck with this measurement. How do they know how heavy the pyramid is? Do they weigh one of the blocks and then no just like, it's based on like the it'll be like density won't it so it'll be based on all the like, little yeah. measure it and impressed stuff. that you knew that was no yeah. no <laughs> you said on. that with such confidence don't <laughs> well, you like no I'm, I'm assuming i mean i might be completely wrong please megan <laughs> it's density if, if, I, if i'm wrong please write the answer on the postcode <laughs> postcode postcard <laughs> the postcodes i have one more tenuous study that I was going to talk about it's not tenuous so much it's just because you were talking about COVID and as you were talking I was trying to find quickly oh, if you what... want a story on COVID I can, <laughs> I can find one and you can also visit the news med COVID hub which is up to date with all the latest information on COVID-19 it is I can confirm that well I actually didn't want to talk about COVID oh. itself because... <laughs> but um it just reminded me of something that I was originally going to bring up in this podcast but then decided to abandon but I actually think no I will give it its time. <laughs> Welcome to something about science extra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because I don't have loads to say about it, there's not a lot of information, but um, it's something that I thought was cool. And it was actually using COVID mask waste for carbon capture, which I thought was really cool. We've had a couple studies or like press releases on AZOM, um, the AZOM Materials Hub, about using mask waste. Because I guess now we're. I don't want to say on the other side of the pandemic, because obviously it's still very prevalent. But now that we're kind of thinking about what comes next, we are also having to deal with kind of the fallout and the amount of waste from PPE is just one of those things that I don't think we like thinking about because it feels so necessary that we had to use them. But it's like now we've just generated this enormous amount of waste and we don't know what to do with it. And we've had stuff on using it to potentially create energy through pyrolysis, I think something else about trying to make it into a 3D printing filament to go back to 3D printing, although I'm not sure how successful that was. But in this one, researchers looked at converting polypropylene surgical mask waste into carbon fibers doped with sulfur. And these would have a high absorption capacity for carbon dioxide and selectivity against nitrogen. 
And basically the researchers cross-linked the polypropylene fibers derived from surgical masks and converted them into sulfur-doped carbon fibers in the presence of sulfuric acid. So basically making these CO2 sorbents from recycled mask waste. And it's one of the ways that we can tackle this waste in the wake of the pandemic, not only using the waste, but also thinking a bit bigger about what we need our sustainable technologies to do, which is at the moment kind of carbon capture. So I thought it was a really cool idea of kind of bringing the circular economy into an equation where maybe it hasn't been thought about because during the pandemic, it was very much just thinking linearly to get to the end of the pandemic. And now how we can bring that background into a bit of a more sustainable system as the use of surgical masks and stuff persists. Because, I mean, we're still very much dealing with COVID and whatever else might come our way. So, yeah, I think it's one of the things that is often overlooked when we think about the pandemic. But this little new story did catch my eye just because I think it is quite significant. It's almost kind of annoying thinking about it in, in hindsight sense, how good it would have been to have made biodegradable PPE mm. to really save us a problem because I feel like probably many of you both and the people listening have seen all the images of of waste masks kind of coming up on shores and it is like you say it's something we're all aware of but don't particularly want to think about but it's nice to hear that people are kind of taking this very specific problem and focusing it on a very specific solution and you're killing two birds with one stone when you're helping with carbon capture but you're also helping to deal with a very prevalent and a very important issue that we're kind of facing outside of the, the pandemic. And like I said before, this is just one of the things that researchers are thinking about doing with these kind of waste. And although maybe some of the other ways haven't necessarily been developed as much or been as successful, I think, I don't know if we can 3D print with mask waste or if we can use them as an energy source, that would be really, really mind boggling and very, very cool. So yeah, I'm just excited to see what comes of it. I mean, we've got a lot of waste to work with so I'm sure they've got enough to try try it out with but it's so much plastics are used in them um and where there's plastic there's usually some sort of way to recycle them I say hopefully <laughs> so it's yeah, a nice hopeful it. note to end on yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. thanks for bringing the, yeah, that thank to you. attention Okay, well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening to Something About Science. And don't forget to check out the content discussed as all links are in the description. And that's all from me, Skylar, and also Megan and Danielle. And we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family, and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well. This episode was brought to you by Azo Network. We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.